Good morning. Uh, we will continue as we work through the uh, New City Catechism. And uh, this morning we are on question 11. And I will read the question and then together we will read the response. Question 11. What does God require in the 6th, 7th, and 8th commandments? 6th, that we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor, but be patient and peaceful, pursuing even our enemies with love. Seventh, that we abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully, whether in marriage or in single life, avoiding all impure actions, looks, words, thoughts, or desires, and whatever might lead to them. Eighth, that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else, nor withhold any good from someone we might benefit. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you that uh, on this glorious morning we can come to you in prayer. Father, I thank you that we can gather in your name. Uh, Lord, it was a year ago uh, that we ceased gathering for a season. And Lord, many churches have had to uh, put on pause gathering together for longer than we have. But you have allowed us to congregate, and I pray, Father, that we would not take it for granted uh, that we can gather in your name. And Lord, for those who can't and want to, Lord, we ask your blessing on them and your protection, and we pray that you would meet uh, these people in the various ways uh, by your Spirit that they might know you are good, you are God. Father, uh, this world is, is full of so much that is so wrong, but Lord, we can read uh, this catechism and the, the questions, and while we nod in agreement, we recognize that it's not true. Uh, we don't desire good for our neighbors the way we, we should. Uh, Lord, we, we do want what isn't ours. Our, our thoughts run amok. Father, I would pray that the, the weight of this real guilt would be something that we feel uh, so that, Lord, we can appreciate the grace that comes to us through Christ. Father, we pray for our, uh, our missionaries that are proclaiming your word and your gospel around the world. Watch over them. Uh, give them grace and stamina and strength. Lord, for the Valakets who are uh, preparing to come home, uh, Lord, to have lived overseas for years and to move back uh, involves so much. I pray that your grace would be upon them and that they would know uh, your wisdom and power uh, in this transition as, as, as you lead them uh, back, back stateside. Father, we pray um, for our authorities. You tell us to do that, that those are in authority we need to lift them up so that 
we might have quiet and peaceable lives. Lord, we, we do ask that. We pray that that would be our goal, to live peaceable lives marked by the gospel. Uh, I pray that in this body, we would encourage each other in our lives and that, uh, Lord, it, with all the distractions, we would uh, glory in your love for us. Uh, Father, it is a spring break for, for many. Uh, for those who are traveling, I pray for your mercies on them, that uh, you would keep them safe and until you restore them uh, back to us. Uh, Father, we rejoice this week in new life, the baby to uh, Dustin and Janie Smith, and thank you for the good health of all concerned, and, and pray that you would bless that family uh, as they adjust to this uh, new life that you've given them. Father, for the many children in this church, we give thanks and see that as a sign of your blessing and, and pray that we would be wise and grateful uh, as we care for one another and the families that uh, you are bringing together in this body. Now, Lord, as we, as we go to this time of worship, when we look at your word, I, I pray that you would be uh, guarding what is said and from error and uh, more that you would be warming hearts to see your goodness and grace in how you come to us through your word and through the person of Jesus. Uh, Lord, we do ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Good morning. Um, first, we have the scripture reading. Uh, Mark 7. Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, Hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him and said to them, 
Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So we're picking up our study this morning in uh, here, chapter 7. Now stepping back, we can see that Mark's gospel is a story of Jesus coming and being rejected. He came to his own, and his own received him not, as John puts it in his prologue. To be sure, the gospel is the story of the advance of the kingdom, but the advance meets extraordinary opposition. Certainly, the world opposes Jesus and his kingdom. Last week, we saw that, uh, how John the Baptist was imprisoned and ultimately beheaded. But the most prominent opposition is from the religious leaders. Religious leaders who believed they were serving God, but were, in fact, opposing God. Now, I've titled this sermon, Vain Worship, taking it from the passage Jesus quoted from Isaiah in verse 7 of our text this morning, in vain do they worship me. Vain in the sense that has less to do with being preoccupied with self, although that's certainly going on. But it's vain in the sense of being worthless, futile. Imagine that. Vain religion, you orient your life around what you believe and the world admires you for it and admires your, your zeal and in the end, it's worthless. So we'll be looking at this morning what characterized this vain worship. How does it go wrong? No one sets out on a path knowing it's the wrong path. There is a way that seems right. It leads to destruction. That's what vain worship does. What do we look for? Not just in others. It's not just out there, but in our own worship as well. Now, Mark's gospel, which was probably addressed to a Gentile audience, as we'll see, is the record of Jesus. And the theme of rejection is not incidental to the account, but central to it. And God uses this rejection to further his purposes. And this rejection also highlights the, brightly the difference between vain religion and true religion. Now, we've seen conflict with Jesus from the leaders already in Mark uh, chapter 3. When Jesus healed a man with a withered hand, that little vignette closes with verse 6. 
the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Right from the beginning, they were out to destroy Jesus. And it's not just the Jewish leaders who were rejected Jesus. In Mark 6, Jesus is rejected in Nazareth, his hometown, by the people who insisted they already knew everything about Jesus that was worth knowing. But we see it again here from the leaders in chapter 7. All this opposition, it culminates at the end of chapter 8, where Jesus warns his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. That's the context for these scenes here in chapter 7. Now our text here in chapter 7 divides neatly into three scenes. First, the leaders confront Jesus in verses 1 through 13. That's scene 1. Scene 2 says Jesus gathered the crowd and he invests gives them a little talk, very short talk in verse 14 and 15. And then finally, in verses 16 through 23, Jesus is addressing the disciples privately. They have a little seminar in a house. But Mark has grouped all of these together because they are united by this issue of defilement or being unclean. Now let's dive into our text. According to verse 1, it's the Pharisees and some scribes who come down from Jerusalem. This is probably an official delegation, the fruit of the plans referenced in uh, chapter 3 by those who wanted to destroy Jesus. And this group, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now before getting into Jesus' response, Mark provides a little background. As we noted earlier, Mark's gospel contemplates Gentile readers who would not be familiar with the practices of the Pharisees. In this background material, we learn that the Pharisees wash their hands when they come from the marketplace. They also wash pots and pans, copper vessels, and their couches. This has been going on for a long time, and it's a well-established tradition. Now, if you're on a plan of reading through the Bible in a year, depending on which plan you use, it's about this time you probably have been working your way through Leviticus. Now, this issue of defilement or unclean, it's impossible to overstate how prominent and significant this issue is for the Jewish people. There's just tons of stuff about being unclean, about being defiled, and all the various rules you have to do because of this. It's not an obscure verse here and there. These practices and dietary restrictions, they mark out the Jewish people from the surrounding cultures. Clearly, God is concerned about cleanness and uncleanness. So the Pharisees had every reason to believe they were on firm ground when they started asking questions and confronting Jesus on uh, these issues. Now, I'm sure you all know this, but we're not talking about hygiene per se in these questions. Uh, It's it's a ceremonial unclean. It's an elaborate process where they can demonstrate their piety and be 
that, and that they are separate uh, from the world. Notice how they frame the question in verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? There was the law, and then there was the interpretation of the law, called the traditions. And this interpretation was also authoritative. This was well understood and frankly was not in dispute as far as the Pharisees were concerned. Now Jesus' response is some of the harshest language we have from his lips in the entire Bible. He starts by uh, quoting Isaiah 29. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines, the commandments of men. Now let's notice a few things about Jesus' response. First, he uses Scripture to attack the Pharisees from departing from Scripture. Second, Isaiah had prophesied over 600 years earlier. Clearly, Isaiah's words were aimed at his hearers. But Jesus is saying Isaiah's words are aimed to his current hearers. They're aimed at because you, Pharisees, are not, are, are hypocrites. Jesus is saying that Isaiah's hearers rightly experienced the judgment of God because they had run afoul of what God wanted. And Jesus is saying the same things to the Pharisees in his day. And finally, he drives home the fundamental point which is that they have elevated tradition to a place where it trumps the word of God. Now, this is the first and, and fundamental point of vain religion. It is based on the tradition rather than on the word of God. Now, Jesus, just in case we miss it, says it four times in these verses. Verse 7, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Notice this contrast between commandments, traditions, and the Word of God. Uh, verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And then verse 13, thus making void the Word of God by your tradition. Now there are instructions in the Old Testament about washing. In Exodus 30 and Exodus 40, they're, they're there. But those instructions are for the priests who are preparing for service in the tabernacle. There are not instructions about coming from the market or just preparing for a meal. So where did this practice of ceremonial washing before eating come from? Well, it was part of the oral tradition that had been developed over the centuries. In the second century, all these oral traditions were written down and codified, and this collection is known as the Mishnah. And it says right in the Mishnah, tradition is a fence around the law. Now that's the way these things always begin. Something is added, 
usually, if not always, with a good motive. But in short order, it displaces the word of God. When Eve said, we must not touch the tree, she set up a fence. The actual instructions were, we must not eat from the tree. And that's probably a good idea, but that's not exactly what God said. That, that's how this practice gets started. It's right there in creation. We see it elsewhere in the New Testament. When the call for uh, new Gentile believers to be circumcised, well, let's, let's just be safe and, and, and add this extra thing. It's evidence of the same mindset. Now, this happens in every age and every tradition. Uh, growing up, I went to a Christian school and they had markers of piety that involved haircuts and the length of skirts and the kind of music you listened to and what version of the Bible you read. Now, these things are important. The Bible really does talk about long hair on guys, and modesty is a big issue. And what you put into your head, it really matters. But we have to keep these things in their place. Listen to this from uh, theologian Don Carson. In a fair bit of Western evangelicism, there is a worrying tendency to focus on the periphery. My colleague, Dr. Paul Hybert, springs from Mennonite stock and analyzes his heritage in a fashion that he himself would acknowledge as something of a simplistic caricature, but a useful one nonetheless. One generation of Mennonites believed the gospel and held as well that there were certain social, economic, and political entailments. The next generation assumed the gospel but identified with the entailments. The following generation denied the gospel. The entailments became everything. Assuming this scheme for evangelicalism, one suspects that large swaths of the movement are lodged in the second step, with some drifting towards the third. What is it in the Christian faith that excites you? Today, there are endless subgroups of confessing Christians who invest enormous quantities of time and energy in one issue or another. Abortion, pornography, homeschooling, women's ordination, for or against, economic justice, a certain style of worship, defense of a particular Bible version. And countries, of course, have full, agen full agendas of urgent peripheral demands depending on the context. And not for a moment am I suggesting that we should not think about such matters or throw our weight behind them, some of them. But when such matters devour most of our time and passion, each of us must ask, in what fashion am I confessing the centrality of the gospel? Now, I'm anxious to get to the second half of our text before we leave. We need to see the ultimate effect of this kind of religion. First, it's useless to God. These Pharisees believed they were sincere. No doubt, those who saw them admired their commitment. They were walking the walk. But Jesus lays into them, not only for what they did, but also for what comes out of their mouths. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
We can do good things. We can say the right things. And Jesus says it's vain. It's useless. But it's not only useless to God. It's useless to others. Look at the way it plays out. If you've pledged your resources to God, then your parents are left out in the cold. Verse 10, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, I've always thought of this practice that's referenced here as the Pharisees' way of kind of protecting their pocketbook and making sure that they wouldn't have to take care of, of mom and dad as the expenses pile up. But as I've reflected on the way Jesus frames the tradition, you no, no longer permit him to do anything. It makes me believe that the Pharisees actually prohibited someone from taking care of his folks because he had made a pledge to the synagogue. It wasn't that the, so much that the Pharisee wanted to treat, keep his money, it's that the Pharisee came up with a twist. They had the effect of keeping someone from obeying the fifth commandment. This religion is useless to God, and it's useless to others. Now we get to the second scene. It changes here in verse 14. Jesus had been in exchange with the Pharisees and the religious leader, but now Jesus gathers the crowd and says, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, some manuscripts have a verse 16. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, but it isn't in the earliest manuscripts, so it's not included in most versions, and it doesn't really affect um, the drift of the text anyway. Now, obviously, Jesus said more than this, because it's very short. But Mark tells us what he wants to. And it's this statement from Jesus' discourse that sets the stage for the next scene we see, and that's in verse 17. And when he had entered the house, he left the people. His disciples asked him about this parable. The parable that could be translated riddle or saying. We tend to think of parables as stories. This is really short. Well, I'm glad they asked about the parable uh, because... There's a lot going on. There's 1,500 years between them and Moses. And during that time, cleanliness was a big deal. It's very clear in the Old Testament teaching that there's a bunch of stuff that can defile you if you touch it. And Jesus is now saying there's nothing outside of you, even if you eat it, that can defile you. It's the things that come out of you that defile. Now, how does that work? Well, fortunately, Jesus explains it for us. Are you also without understanding? Don't you get it? Do you not see, verse 18, do you not see that whatsoever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, 
but his stomach and is expelled. Jesus is changing their basic understanding of how life works. And at first it seems like great news. We don't have to worry about what we touch or what we eat anymore. And as Mark comments, thus he declared all foods clean. Now it will take a while for all this to sink in and become clear. And remember in Acts 10, God goes through the same lesson again with Peter when he lowers a sheet containing all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. And Peter says, no, I'm a good Jew. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Old habits die hard. But we need to focus on Jesus' expansion on this thought, for he says much more than what's on the outside or what you eat can't defile you. Looking at verses 20 and 23, through 23, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now, we love the gospel here at Redeemer. We want everyone to know the gospel. We put little tracks in the back of the chairs that explain the gospel. We try and emphasize it in all the preaching and teaching that we do, and we want to promote the gospel and not vain religion. And it's right and proper to say that the gospel is good news. But there's an assumption in all this. It's good news to those who understand that they are perishing and who see that. The challenge we run into when proclaiming the gospel is not articulating the good news. Paul does ask for prayer that he might articulate it clearly. The challenge is getting people to believe they need this good news. And sadly, the gospel is rejected because of vain religion. You see, if the real problem with the world comes down to some rituals or ceremony, the gospel does nothing for you. If I'm really not that bad of a person, this great work of God that involves the death of his only begotten son can seem a little over the top. Vain religion cannot grapple with our true condition. The Pharisees are upset because the disciples are eating with unclean hands. Jesus is focused on our unclean hearts. Now what Jesus says about the heart is never going to appear on a Valentine card. But we need to hear it. For from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Translators handle this verse different ways. It it, it's, might be clearer to say, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts which give rise to sexual immorality, theft, murder, and so on. As Romans 5 explains, in Adam we all sinned. And from Adam we have a heart condition 
It's called a sin nature. Now, all this is called the doctrine of original sin. It's not that we do bad things and are therefore sinners. It's that we are sinners and therefore we do bad things. Now, this has extraordinary implications. First, it shows how worthless all the traditions and religions of men really are for dealing with our real problem. Sure, there's some rituals we can go through if we've done something wrong. But that's not going to remove the sin, and we keep on sinning. If you were alone on a desert island, you would still be bent on sinning. The problem isn't out there. It's, it's not other people. The problem is here, inside. It's deeper than our DNA. And if we don't grapple with this, we will develop various approaches to life and our need for forgiveness. And we'll do this to assuage our conscience. We will point to the pious practices, but these are worthless. Now, this is not a new thought in Scripture. Consider these texts from the Old Testament. From Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Jeremiah 13, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Now, all these texts, they're known by the Pharisees, and they're known to us, but we really don't believe it. Now, original sin is not a philosophical doctrine, but it's a practical doctrine. Listen to this from G.K. Chesterton. Modern masters of science are much impressed with the need of beginning all inquiry with a fact. The ancient masters of religion were quite equally impressed with that necessity. They began with the fact of sin, a fact as practical as potatoes. Whether or no man could be washed in miraculous waters, there was no doubt at any rate that he wanted washing. But certain religious leaders in London, not mere materialists, have begun in our day not to deny the highly disputable water, but to deny the indisputable dirt. Certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of the Christian theology which can really be proved. Now, we can look around the world, and there's an extraordinary amount of progress that is going on in all sorts of domains. You know, in 1966, the life expectancy was only 56 years across the world. In 2016, it was 72. That's an increase of 29%. In 1966, out of every 1,000 infants born, 113 died before their first birthday. In 2016, only 32 died. That's a reduction of 72%. Average income per person rose from $3,700 to over $17,000, or by 372%. And that's adjusted for inflation. 
the food supply. The world has risen from 2,300 calories from 1966 to over 2,800 calories, thus reducing hunger. The length of schooling available has gone from four, just over four years to almost nine years, 110% increase. Fascinating website called Human Progress. You can go and look at all these things. Now, this is great news. In, in one sense, our lives are so much better in all sorts of concrete ways. But are we better people? I am so delighted there are so many children, so many more children alive because of these advances. But every one of these children is bringing forth the same problem. But we have to reorient our understanding of ourselves and the world because of this problem. Last week, I watched a, a documentary about a, a fellow who uh, went on blew up a number of people uh, in the state of Utah. And at first they can't believe, you know, why did this happen? But they interviewed all these people and knew them, and, and their t testimony was universal. I, ju I just can't believe that he was capable of doing this sort of thing. And you know what Jesus is saying? We are all capable of doing that sort of thing. I mentioned that I went to a Christian school when I was growing up. And now when I was in college, I asked my dad, why did he do that? Why did he send me there? And he explained that he had sent an, an older brother to the local public high school, and he had gotten into all sorts of trouble. And he wanted to avoid that with me. I thought that was a rather simplistic, from what I knew, uh, version of what happened. Now listen, I do think that controlling your kid's environment is a first-order task for parents. But if you don't teach your kids that their primary problem is their own wicked heart, you are doing them a disservice. We can go about parenting focusing on the externals and leave our kids oblivious and thus vulnerable to the real danger, the danger of a corrupt heart bent on sinning. And that's the worst part about vain religion. It doesn't grasp the depth of our sinful condition. Now, being able to articulate the doctrine of our sin nature is, is, is not a remedy for it. But it is a start. And it helps to explain so much and is so critical in our walk with Jesus. Now, in our family group, We've been going through the book, Gentle and Lowly. I know there's at least one other group that's uh, doing that as well. And last week, we went through chapter 10. And in the book, the author, Dane Ortland relates the story of Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon exclusively to children. If you had an opportunity to preach exclusively to children, what do you think your main point would be? Here was Edwards. Children ought to love the Lord Jesus Christ above all things in the world. That's his point. Notice it's not that God loves you, but you ought to love God. Now he goes on to explain this. Now, it's no different for adults. We ought to love the Lord Jesus Christ above all things in the world. 
Now, how do we go about doing that? Now, there are a number of steps we should take, but surely one of them is to embrace this teaching of Jesus. Out of my heart springs evil thoughts which give rise to all sorts of wickedness. God sees all of this clearly and undertook his great work of redemption. God does not save us from trifling dangers. We need more than a washing. When David prayed in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, he's asking for a miracle, a new heart in a person. It's because he knew the depths of his sin. If we don't grasp the depths of our sin, we're going to have the same, we have the same problem. And we need new hearts. If we don't grasp it, our, our love for God is going to be formal and trite. So how do we grow in our love for Jesus? Come to grips with how dark our hearts are. As Jesus says in Luke 7, 47, her sins which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Uh, let us pray that God would give us understanding of how much we've been forgiven. In the book of Ezekiel, God made a promise. By this time, the futility of the effort to try and obey God was well established. Israel was defeated and dispersed. None of this was a surprise to God, for all was unfolding according to his plan for our salvation. To say things look grim would be an understatement. Into that setting, God spoke these words. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Our sins are many. God can deliver them through Christ from all of them. Let's pray. Ah, Lord, we turn away from the darkness that's there in our hearts, recognizing how, how great it is, and, 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 and we despair of changing trying not to do that bad thing again. Lord, you saw all this and you came for us and your heart moves towards us in mercy. 
I would pray, Lord, that we would be taken with how complete our corruption is and, Father, how complete your salvation is for us. And, Lord, may our affection deepen by your Spirit. Give us power to love you more because we see how great your salvation is. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand and sing with us?